Qualico was making headway, now we're taking away their pedway. This week, no time was wasted packing our schedule, I'm going to say schedule, with stuff to talk about. We've got headway memos and police flashbangs, both the physical kind and on Twitter too. Hi, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. I love how that Speaking Municipally lined up for us, Mac. You know, it's clearly <laughs> talent that we have that no one else does. 160 odd episodes of practice will do that to you, I think. Speaking of which, welcome back to Speaking Municipally, episode 163. We're back from vacation. Council is also back. Uh, we've dealt with that horrible fever dream last week that we don't have to talk about any longer. And we're ready to cover what Council did this week, which was a lot. I did want to ask you one thing about last week, Troy. How are you feeling about those download stats? <laughs> you know, here's the thing. It was pretty typical, if I'm being honest. No increases, no decreases. Turns out that the product that we put out, people will put up with one bad episode in spite of it. <laughs> so, um, sorry, Andrew, your sabotage failed. On to the rapid fire. The city's transit union is concerned that due to COVID-related staffing challenges, bus trips are being missed. As a result, Edmonton Transit has announced temporary short-term service adjustments. Speaking Municipally asked dozens of riders this week for their thoughts on the issue, but could not find anyone who felt that bus service frequency had gotten any worse. 2022 will see 48 new safe crossings added to Edmonton's road infrastructure, the city boasted this week. From 2015 to 2021, the city has installed over 300 safe crossings, or an average of 64 a year. So the 48 selected for upgrade this year represents solid progress on the city's ambitious Vision Zero goal to provide zero investment for safe infrastructure by 2026. More than 400,000 property assessment notices were mailed to Edmontonians this week as part of the annual ritual used to determine property owners' fair share of the Edmonton municipal tax burden. The assessment and taxation branch manager said this week that it's important that homeowners review their assessments for accuracy, and if the assessment comes in higher than a homeowner expects, they should promptly raise rents to ensure that any negative burdens are borne solely by the lower class. Speaking Municipally is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, locally grown, community supported, and this episode is brought to you by Park Power, your friendly local utilities provider in Alberta. It offers internet, electricity, and natural gas with low rates, awesome service, and profit sharing with local charities. In Alberta, you get to choose who you buy your internet, electricity, and natural gas from. If you choose Park Power, you are choosing a positive local business. Plus, Park Power shares some of its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owners, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network. So, you know, we fit together just like two fingers being smushed together on your hands. So it's a great fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. Smack, I want to start with something that happened this Wednesday, and I got to say, came completely out of left field for me. I usually feel like I've got you know, at least some finger on the pulse of what's coming. Counselors usually indicate, you know, what they're thinking are. We just had an election campaign. So policy agendas seem to be something that's predictable. This memo that came from O'Damon counselor Ann Stevenson, happy about it, but caught me way out of left field. Right. At executive committee this week, she gave notice of motion that she's going to ask basically to cancel the 103rd Avenue Pedway and release all of the $26.5 million of the downtown serial debt that would have funded that Pedway back into the CRL. 
And she brought this up at executive committee literally in the last three minutes of the meeting and said to her colleagues that she would follow up with a memo, which she did. And it has been circulated and we have seen the memo. Uh, And in, in that, she basically explains her rationale for bringing this forward. And the gist of it is that she thinks this is a bad use of money and that we could get better return on the total $37 million that's been designated for this project from the city. And also that she thought it was appropriate to give the applicant as much notice as possible. She called it procedurally fair to flag my concerns now rather than leaving it until the 11th hour decision when the borrowing bylaw comes forward for this. Some of the things that really resonated very true with what her arguments were, were that pedways are antithetical to what we have for the city plan. The arguments for the pedways by Qualico, the developer in question here, were concerns about safety. And she argues pretty rightly that, you know, if we increase street level vibrancy, that does an order of magnitude to increase safety on the street level for everyone, not just the people who can pay for the private access. It's not a great return on investment to build a private pedway. There's a whole lot of reasons to not do this. And she went about it the right way. You know, let's not ambush the developer. She's not anti-developer here. She's just anti-pedway. And aren't we all? <laughs> well, we should be. Uh, she may she may have gone about this the right way, but this is, I think, a very clear break from the previous council's direction, right? So this came up in June of 2021. Qualico came forward and basically said, we want to build the station lands. We are telling you it's going to be over $840 million of investment. And the way to unlock that is to pay for our pedway. And council at the time said, yeah, okay. And so in August of that year, just a couple of months later, last August of last year, they voted and improved an amendment to the CRL plan for the downtown CRL that would enable this. So the last remaining hurdle is this borrowing bylaw that would come forward uh, to actually take the money and be able to use that to pay for the pedway. So the previous council basically gave the direction that that's where we want to go. We want to borrow this money. We want to update the CRL. We want to make it so that this pedway is a catalyst project, which I think you and I made fun of last year, Troy. <laughs> yep. And and now the new council, or at least Councillor Stevenson, is saying, no, actually, we don't agree with the direction of the previous council. So I thought that was a pretty interesting um, point about this this issue that has come up is that this is a break. So I wonder when the, you know, when her motion does come to council next week, it should come to council on January 24th. Will we see a new versus returning councilor split in the vote? I don't think so. Maybe. We don't know what exactly was being negotiated by the previous council. For example, you know, there was a very different climate on the nat- on the old council. You had councilors like Mike Nickel and Tony Katarina and John Zadok on that council could have been that the pedway was the lesser of two evils. And had they rejected the pedway, we would have gotten a far more negative outcome as the next amendment. I think it's worth reiterating that there were several members of the old council who said, city plan is trash. Let's not do this thing. It's anti-car. Where do you think Mayor Sohi may land on this? He said, after Councillor Stevenson gave the notice of motion, that he wanted this to come to council as quickly as possible because he says it has, quote, the potential to derail a few million dollars of investment in the downtown core, which, you know, people are concerned about right now in the pandemic because downtown, I don't know if you've been here lately, Troy, but it's pretty dead. 
Yeah, uh, I have. And sorry. <laughs> Mayor Sohi, I think I'll need to wait later in the term to be able to make any predictions about him. I think especially this was apparent on the police funding mm -hmm. where he withdrew the motion afterwards, but he was taking a very middle of the road. Let's give six million dollars to the police as his proposed amendment. While Mayor Sohi campaigned very progressively. And while I think he holds these ideals of progressivism, um, I don't know that he is as radical as some of the people on council who were newly elected, who have an agenda and want to see it done quickly. I feel like Mayor Sohi's a lot more of a consensus builder, incrementalist, slow and steady type of governor. And, you know, maybe we'll see that here. Maybe we won't. It's very hard to say at this point. I think that's a fair assessment. Yeah, I'm not sure if I have a guess either about which way he'll go. I did want to highlight two things that Councillor Stevenson mentioned in her uh, memo that really, really stood out for me. Not only did she say that this is essentially a poor use of money, she gave examples and I think it's a good uh, example of counselor, a new counselor, kind of wanting to put their money where their mouth is, right? So the two examples she said is that if this $37 million for station lands was approved, it would unlock $184 million in investment. And that is based on what Qualico has told us. That is not guaranteed. And she says, in contrast, the $19 million that the city spent on the economic recovery grant resulted in $536 million of private investment. So that's pretty good. I also don't know exactly where that number comes from, but even if it's off by a little bit, it's significantly more than what Qualico is promising. The more interesting one to me is at the end of her memo, she talks about uh, affordable housing and notes that we've heard that it costs a million dollars to build 100 new units of mixed income housing with home ed and that 37 million represents over 125 units of permanent supportive housing. Uh, so this is a thing that council has been talking about for years, and it's refreshing to me to see a new councillor say, well, we can continue to complain to the province and the federal government about how we need money for this, but we also have a lot of money we spend in the city and maybe we should spend it more wisely. That's a really interesting point because this is a private pedway to keep people downtown safe, ostensibly. Qualico didn't say this, but the implication is there from people on the street, yeah, uh, from people living rough. There's another way to prevent interactions between people who are living on the street and uh, people walking down the street, and that's to not have people living on the street. Permanent supportive housing goes quite a long way to prevent from people from living on the corner of a sidewalk. There are lots of comments and complaints about downtown safety, but thankfully our downtown got a little bit safer this week because the police played with their new toys and charged renters for the privilege. Um, maybe I'm editorializing there, but <laughs> this was a story that everything about it seems wrong. The police detonated flashbangs downtown, caused $3,000 of damages to a downtown restaurant, and now the tenants of that building are paying the fees. What am I missing here, Mac? What has everything possible gone wrong in this story? There is nothing about this that seems like it makes any sense. So this was an arrest made last summer. Police were responding to uh, an armed robbery or possible robbery, and there was a possibility apparently of a firearm being involved. So the SWAT team or the tactical section were the, the people that responded. And they used these flashbang grenades, which they say they use sometimes in these sorts of situations, to try to more peacefully resolve the thing. And in the process, they 
smashed some windows, they broke some tile, they destroyed an outdoor speaker system. This this is all outside of Sin Wine and Tapas, which is on 104th Street on my street here. And after they did all that, they just left a business card inside the restaurant. So when the restaurant owners came in, found the business card, they had to call the officer to find out what happened. And then they went on this journey uh, over the last number of months to try to get somebody to pay for this, leaving aside why the landlord didn't pay for this. I assume something in their lease agreement is is uh, the reason there. It is kind of shocking that the police can go and cause damage like this and then not have to pay for it or not have to do anything more than leave a business card behind. And of course, we know if it's not the police, then it should fall to the city. And in this case, this went to a city claims adjuster who said that there was no negligence on the part of the city or EPS. And so this restaurant is out on their own. They have to pay for it themselves. This isn't like the police drove a tank through a house and has caused $3 million of damage. This is $3,000. The police have a budget of over $300 million. For a small business owner, especially a restaurant in pandemic times, $3,000 could be survival or failure of the business. For the Edmonton police, they have probably spent more than $3,000 in staff time denying this claim. Absolutely. And this restaurant, like all restaurants, is struggling right now. Reservations are down significantly, especially in this latest Omicron wave. Um, The other thing about the 3,000 that we should note is that it's not worth it to go to court for $3,000, right? You're going to pay more in legal fees to do that. Well, if it's only three grand, you can probably do small claims and then not pay legal fees, right? Unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, Avnish Nanda, who uh, people on Twitter will definitely know, said that they can't even go to small claims court for this because the law says that all suits against the police have to go to the court of Queen's Bench in Alberta. And it would cost likely close to $3,000 just to start a lawsuit in that court, let alone get it anywhere close to a a trial where you might get a decision. So, I mean, these small amounts of money are nothing to the police, as you point out, but they make a big difference to these businesses or anyone who's impacted by the property damage. I've had personal experience with this. The police have responded to something in our condo building, broken a window, and the condo board was required to pay for it. And the amounts are so small for like a broken window or whatever that, you you know, there's no recourse here. And it doesn't seem right that the police can go around causing this damage and then not have to pay for it. So what does the police say here? Because how we're framing this, it sounds like the police are traipsing around town, you know, throwing their grenades at buildings and laughing off the damage, which... I would suspect is not how the EPS characterizes this. No, definitely not. And I mean, uh, to be fair, they they did say that this was a situation where they thought there was an offensive weapon. It was danger to the public, a prohibited firearm. Like they were following their procedures to try and keep everybody safe, including the officers, right? And you know, I'm not suggesting they should have done something more dangerous and as an, a, a way to try to apprehend this individual. They do what they need to do, but it just doesn't seem right that they don't clean up after themselves when they go and do that. So they defended the use of the flashbang, of course. Um, The other thing that I thought was strange, and I mentioned it, is that all they did was leave a business card. And so I asked EPS about this, and they told me that it is common for officers to provide business cards to members of the public who may have questions or additional information about an incident. It's not exactly where my question was going, right? I mean, you cause a bunch of damage, you break a window, 
all you have to do is leave a business card behind. There's nothing else to tell the people about it. That's kind of strange. Although I guess maybe they just didn't have a way to contact them at that time. And so the most expedient thing to do was to leave a business card. My other question to EPS was when these sorts of incidents happen, what are the requirements for officers? I mean, presumably they make an arrest. There's some paperwork that needs to be done. What about when there's property damage involved? And uh, an EPS spokesperson told me that what they do need to do in the event of either vehicle or, or property damage, any kind of incident like that where there's some damage, is there is a form that they have to fill out and that must be submitted to the City of Edmonton Insurance and Claims Management section. I also reached out to the city to find out more about these forms and about, you know, how many instances of this do we see in any given year? And we are still waiting on a response for that. So hopefully we'll have more on that uh, on Taproot this week. I do wonder if there's like some room for some socialized risk management here. I know that every ticket pays into a victims of crime fund, but I have no real surface area. Should should that go to this? Should we be paying $3,000 out of the Victims of Crime Fund to this business owner to replace their windows? In the case of the property damage, I don't think it needs to be that complicated. The city must have records. If it goes to these insurance section, they must have records about how much or at least how many instances of property damage there are every year from police activity. That sounds like a straightforward thing to budget for. If we are talking at capital budget about new grenades or armed vehicles or any of the things that police are going to use, I think it's safe to assume that some of those things are going to cause some damage and maybe that we should just be budgeting for that. I don't think it's right that the city can cause these small amounts of damage, the police can cause these small amounts of damage, and that the city and the police don't need to pay for it. Uh, we, we want them to keep uh, the city safe, certainly, but we also want them to do that in a way that doesn't go around causing more problems in the communities that they're serving. This doesn't seem so crazy to me that we could budget for this amount in the $600 million we already spend on police. Sounds to me like you're basically advocating for producer responsibility except not for climate change for police damage maybe yeah speaking of police damage the police has damaged uh, casey madu's standing in the ministry of justice this week it's a weak transition we're gonna move right past it uh this week justice minister casey madu the only ucp mla from edmonton is now no longer justice minister casey madu he has been told to step back while an investigation is ongoing to what I would characterize as a miscarriage of justice, uh, he <laughs> received a ticket in a school zone for texting on his phone, distracted driving was the charge. And he then he decided, rather than pay the fine, hey, I'm the minister of justice. Let's call police chief Dale McVie and talk about this. I'm told that's a no-no. Yeah, yeah, that's not a good look for the justice minister, the boss, essentially, of our police chief. I mean, not exactly, but you get the idea. Both uh, Madhu and McPhee denied that uh, there was any discussion about trying to get out of the ticket or anything like that when this phone call happened. Later, Casey Madhu said that the reason he called Chief Dale McPhee uh, was because he was concerned about racial profiling. Casey Madu, of course, is black, and he was concerned that potentially that played a role in his ticket. Obviously, the police denied this, and Michael Elliott, who's the president of the police association, said that he was very frustrated with Madu for making these allegations. He was unhappy about that, obviously, that he called into question the integrity of uh, the officers that he works with. And just to clarify, Madu didn't only call into question the integrity of the officers by alleging 
a potential for systemic racism in the Edmonton police. He called into question the integrity of the specific officer issuing them a ticket, ostensibly calling that officer a liar. Mm, that's true. Now, if I'm being completely honest, uh, you can go listen to probably Dave Berta. Shout out to Dave Conway. He'll probably talk about this and you can hear all about what Kenny knew when and the political implications at the province for this. To be honest, I'm not super interested in that. The interesting part of this story to me is, like you mentioned, Michael Elliott, the president of the Edmonton Police Association, tweeted about this and really took Casey Madu to task. Dale McPhee uh, went on a bit of a media offensive about this to defend the Edmonton Police Service. And I think what we're seeing is a continuation of the trend of the Edmonton Police Service upticking their social media game, the us versus them, the staunch defense of police in the city of Edmonton. We've seen this ramp up throughout budget time. And the one thing about this is I have no love lost for Michael Elliott, the uh, Edmonton <laughs> Police Association president. However, this situation makes him come out like a really good guy. Dale McPhee comes out looking really good in this situation. And that's always what makes me fearful. A situation like this where, you know, my two enemies are fighting and one of them wins. Do, do I celebrate or do I accept that maybe both of these people were damaging from the beginning? Does this get us put on a list um, at the EPS? I don't know, man. <laughs> we're probably already on that list. I'm really glad you mentioned this. I follow Michael Elliott on all of his social media accounts, and I very rarely find myself agreeing with anything he has written or shared. And I did this week when he called out uh, Casey Madu and told him that he knew better and called it aud audacious, and there was a lot of arrogance involved. And, you know, I felt the same kind of uncomfortable feeling as you did, I think. Yeah. And in that same breath where we're appreciating the EPS standing up for justice against uh corrupt justice minister. Uh, Dale McPhee, chief of police, also retweeted a story from Seattle about how uh, a business owner was blaming progressive policies for an uptick in crime. You know, he sensibly made the point, you know, are these progressive policies dealing with crime or are the progressive policies the cause of crime, which with a very progressive council with an agenda of police reform, I think is pretty indicative of the police and how they want to work collaboratively with this council. I want to transition to the second largest line item in the city of Edmonton after the police service, and that's our transit system. And Mac, I don't know if you door knocked with many councillors during this election period. I suspect few of them because you're running a journalism organization. <laughs> None. Yes, I did no door knock in this election. Uh, but I was on the doors with uh, several candidates several times during the election. And throughout the entire process, there was a through line. It didn't matter which neighborhood you went to. It didn't matter which candidate you were talking to. It didn't matter progressive, conservative. The one through line was, I have problems with the bus network redesign. Now, the exact problems um, varied from person to person, but there was not a single constituent that I talked to that said, you know what worked out great? the bus network redesign, no notes whatsoever. And it's not just constituents. From where I was sitting during the election, we were asking candidates about this. None of the successful candidates, none of the people on council felt that the bus network redesign, which came into effect in April last year, first major revision of the transit map since 1997, none of them felt 
that it struck a good balance between frequency and coverage. And so for those reasons, I was quite interested in this first interim report from the city of Edmonton about this. And I was expecting there to be some detail on the number of complaints they got, what the major issues were that people had, and possibly, you know, some information about what they were going to do about it, how they were going to make some changes to, you know, not throw it out, not start over, but tweak the bus network redesign to make it better for everybody. It was really shocking to me when I read a headline this week that said, the city is proposing in its first interim report, absolutely no changes whatsoever to the bus network redesign. What's going on with that? I was also surprised to read this. You're talking about the Post Media story that said the city is not recommending changes to the heavily criticized new bus network. And when I first read that, I thought, really? How could they not be making any changes to this thing that everybody's been complaining about? Unfortunately, I could find no evidence that they've made no changes or are making no changes in the actual report, which states that they've made more than 50 changes to dozens of routes. Virtually every route, they said, has been affected since the launch of the new bus network. So they've been making continual changes. The report says they are doing some further analysis before they're going to make future changes. They want to have a deeper understanding of potential service gaps before they make future changes and that they're doing an equity analysis as well. And that's all happening in the first half of this year. But to say that there's been no changes is not accurate based on the report that we got. One of the things we were sold with the bus network redesign is our old transit network design, which had, you know, a lot of very long neighborhood routes that snaked through with timing points that were very closely aligned. One of the problems with it was you couldn't make changes basically anywhere on the route without cascading effects down the line. And that was one of the things that was supposed to be solved with these high frequency corridors on the bus network redesign. You'd be able to make small changes in particular neighborhoods and not have it have cascading effects down the bus network that impacts everyone. And I think, not to give administration too much credit, because that's off brand for me on the podcast, (laughs) but I think it worked. Uh, One of the things in the report that floored me a little bit was in the analysis section, it said, quote, the initial bus network redesign plan was revised by 20% based on feedback from public engagement. And then it goes on to give some further examples that you mentioned earlier. But a 20% change in a year, that's some nimbleness that we did not have previously. So, you know, problems with the bus network aside, there's always going to be problems with the new thing. I think this is working. Yeah, the city said there are five opportunities per year to make these changes. And that's partly because they've got to have employee schedules and things line up. But still, that seems like they do have some ability to be nimble, as you say. So that does seem like a little bit of a win. I got to say, Mac, when I went into this bus network redesign item, I was hot. I was ready. (laughs) I was ready to say, what a bag of lies. We've been sold on this BNR. The buffoons running this city. Rah, rah, rah. Get me my Lauren Gunter article. And, you know, reading the reports, the wind's kind of been taken out of my sails. This seems like a good news story except for the news media presenting it as a bad news story. (laughs) I think the one area that maybe is not such a good news story is that uh, the number one complaint from people over the the last nine or 10 months has been about increased walking distance to the nearest stop. And if you look at the service changes that they made, they did make dozens of changes. Not many of them are related to 
changing the distance to stops. Most of them are about adding service, adding new morning trips to routes, that kind of thing. So people who are still complaining about not having a stop close enough to them are probably still complaining about that. And I guess would be hoping that this further analysis the city is going to do is going to result in some changes to those things as well. I want to close this week with some further changes that a counselor wants to do. Sorry, Mac, we're going to talk about snow clearing, but we'll be we'll be brief. Snow clearing is the much maligned topic at the city of Edmonton, and we always talk about it, and we always talk about all the problems, and we never seem to quite be able to fix it. Counselor Tim Cartmel, who you'll hear later on in the episode in his counselor introduction, this week proposed a solution to snow clearing. Is <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't laugh. And his solution <laughs> is to completely throw it out and start from scratch. Mac, didn't the previous council have that idea? And wasn't he part of that throw it out and start from scratch solution? And wasn't the start from scratch solution calcium chloride, which he fought tooth and nail against? Am I misremembering something? No, I don't think you're misremembering. And, you know, at first I was like, what a ridiculous take. Why? What do you mean start from scratch? You know, that just seems absurd. And then I read a news release the city sent out this week titled City of Edmonton Trials Windrow Pickup in Griesbach. <laughs> and it said that they are starting this Friday when you're listening to this episode, going to assess the process and cost of windrow pickup in residential areas. And I thought to myself, Troy, if we are only now in 2022 learning how to pick up snow off the road and put it into a truck... <laughs> Maybe Tim Cartmel is on to something here. I think the funniest part about that news release is not, you know, what you're saying about, are we just now learning how to pick up snow off a road, which is very, very funny. But it's also that the city does not appear to have any idea of what it will cost to pick up snow until they actually do it. They, they, <laughs> the budgeting of putting a person in a truck and calculating the volume of the truck bucket... It's just too much. They can't possibly do that without physically driving a truck. Well, there you go, Councillor Cartmel. I'm listening. I'm listening. (laughs) And you, dear listener, should listen to what Councillor Cartmel has to say. We have his counselor introduction coming up next. Uh, You'll notice that my voice is not present. This was an introduction recorded with you, Mac, and Councillor Andrew Knack. I, for some reason that I will leave as an exercise for the listener, was not invited to this recording session. We are excited to have our next counselor that we're going to hear from, Counselor Tim Cartmel, representing Ward Pesuin. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Nice to see you. Nice to see you as well. All right. Well, congratulations on uh, being part of this council term. Uh, for listeners who don't know much about you, or maybe they uh, haven't had the opportunity to hear from you in your own words before, tell us a bit about yourself. Who are you? What should uh, listeners to speaking municipally know about Tim Cartmel? Oh boy. Uh, well, I guess very quickly, uh, born and raised in Edmonton, uh, as was my wife. We have three uh, university-aged children. In fact, our oldest has graduated and out of the house, so uh, I'm a little older than Andrew, uh, but not a lot. Um, so born and raised here, uh, got an engineering degree from the U of A and a master's of engineering from the U of A as well. I've uh, spent the better part of 30 plus years in the consulting engineering um, industry in Edmonton. So did a lot of uh, design work first, uh, quite a lot of heavy, uh, heavy industrial oil and gas design in the oil sands and in the plants around Edmonton. And then later, um, when I started my own business, more residential, commercial, light industrial type design work, structural design and project management work. So 
uh, still dabble in that here and there a little bit and uh, did a lot of community work in that in those uh, sort of adult years after graduation uh, and into children and uh, into life and uh, into family life uh, got to know uh, I guess notably Councillor Anderson and uh, and at the time uh, for a lot of those years our MLA was uh, Dave Hancock got to know those fellows quite well and uh, when Brian decided that he wasn't going to run again, uh, the two of them ganged up on me, and here I am. And you are, of course, one of the returning councillors for this term. Um, was it a easy decision? Was there a decision to be made there, really, about whether or not you were going to run again? Or was there something from your first term that made you think, ah, I definitely need to put my name in the in the ring again? Uh, I, I really, I, there was no decision, I guess, to answer the question. I was uh, had always intended, I guess, to run more than once. I saw that as more than a one-term thing, you know, uh, didn't really make any sort of commitments ahead of time. Uh, I didn't feel like there was much unfinished because it's a continuum, right? It's, it's a, it's a continuum of work. I really enjoy the work. Uh, I enjoy the people that I, uh, that I work with in the community, the people I've gotten to know uh, in all those years of all those community league meetings and those other community initiatives. It's been uh, really fun uh, to sort of take that to the next level. So no, I, I, there was no really, uh, no real hesitation at all to uh, continue doing this. I really enjoy it. And the, the people obviously loved Tim because uh, he has the distinction of the, by far and away the greatest uh, win in, in the 2021 election. Tim, you won with 81.2% of the vote. I was, uh, I, I knew like when I ran, decided I was going to run again for city council, I was like, I'd love to try and get the highest percentage but I knew the moment Tim is like, I'm going to run again. I'm like, well, he's going to get 80% of the vote because the folks love him in the war that he represents. And absolute votes too. The absolute vote number was higher than most of the mayoral candidates. Yeah. A huge Just victory. It. Well, I mean, you're both very kind. I think that, you know, that comes from having a lot of uh, support with the people that work in my office. Uh, you know, we, we really emphasize, I said this in my first term, my first election, and that was that, you know, our primary goal here is to bring government to the ward because it's so hard for the ward to get to the government. You know, it's, it's a, physically a long way to go. A lot of our time, uh, our work is in the day. Uh, so it has been a point of emphasis to get out and talk and see and meet and greet and understand uh, as many people as possible in those after hours, in those evenings and weekends. And I, I really think that's paid off. It's, it's, um, it, it certainly is gratifying to have those, you know, those pretty strong results. Um, but that also uh, means there's a pretty high expectation uh, of, of, uh, of representation. And I, I embrace that and I welcome that wholeheartedly. It's, uh, it's uh, like I said, it's really fun. And it's really fun when you have for the general, uh, generally speaking, that, that level of support from the people you represent. So, so that, that leads yeah. me to the one question I, I'm curious about throughout this campaign, you, you did get a, such a great result. Uh, were, were there common themes you were hearing from people at the doors in the ward that you're representing? If, if there's, is there one or two things that, that you jumped, uh, jumped on? It's so neighborhood specific, right? So, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I think you're the same, Andrew, but there, you know, I represent several, uh, very mature neighborhoods, you know, where the housing stock is 60, 70 years old and neighborhoods, you know, outside the, the Hende ring that are very, very new uh, neighborhoods. So there's, there's really different issues in different places. If I was to summarize them, there, there's probably two things. And that was that uh, consistently people want to see uh, some amount of traffic calming in their neighborhood, on the on the street in front of their house. Uh, it's a suburban ward. It's I don't have a BI, a business improvement area. I don't have a lot of commercial space. I have no industrial 
uh, no big employment node really. You know, it's it is a lot of suburb, uh, and people are kind of tired of watching cars rip up and down the road to the point where they're afraid to have their children up there. So, uh, you know, that that's that street labs initiative, that traffic calming, that uh, you know, that asking for people to have a little bit of respect when they travel through the neighborhood was a a big theme. It manifests itself in different ways in different parts of the neighborhood, but it's common. And I would say the other thing that without saying it actually, that people really wanted was the 15 minute communities that we talk about in our uh, city plan. Uh, I want things closer. If I'm in a new neighborhood, uh, you know, I would like a little bit better transit, but I, I, I want, you know, things that are convenient and within that 15 minute walk. And frankly, in, in the established neighborhoods, it's largely there. Um, but certainly Again, in that ring outside that Henday ring, uh, where is my spontaneous recreation opportunity? Where is my daycare? Where, uh, in some cases, where is my school? Or mm-hmm. I can see a school, but I can't get in that school. Uh, where's my employment opportunity? Can we do a little bit more about entertainment? Can, so, uh, you know, to, to put it all in a bucket, it's different things in different blocks, but it's very much that notion that uh, people want uh, that perhaps romantic experience that they can do a lot of what they want to do within a few steps of their home. They want to see that life and color in their neighborhood. So um, you're really taking that to heart, I think. So some listeners might know you because of the Twiller, Go- Twiller Go Drive Expressway Project, or you know maybe they, they, they uh, had the opportunity to speak to you on the doorstep. So uh, with all of those kinds of things in mind uh, and all of the other issues that are before you, is there one big thing that comes to mind that you would like to accomplish this term or, or if it's not one big thing, is there like a, a first on the priority list thing that you'd like to, to focus on? Well, I think, you know, the, all of these things overlap in so many ways, but I, I think the, the big thing that is in front of us uh, is the next four year budgets, the, the operating capital budgets, which are the, the 23 to 26 budgets and, and everything that's going to go into that. So, uh, we're going to uh, employ a prioritized budgeting process. So uh, what are our priorities? Uh, what comes first? What comes next? Um, you know, what do people want to see? And it's going to be different in different wards and, and in different parts of the wards and different segments of the city. Uh, so that's the work I really want to dig into. Uh, uh, that kind of, there's slivers of that work. Uh, you know, I'm excited to be on utility committee this time around. Uh We've, we took a giant step, you know, with uh, with our new waste managed waste collection system. Uh, so refining and evolving that to make it ever better. I'm excited about that work. We were talking about that earlier today. That's an exciting piece for me. I want to dig in a bit more. Uh, our administration might not be excited to hear this because we're warned to not dig in so deep. But I want to dig in a bit more. Uh, on things like snow clearing and uh, the cost of infrastructure and uh, some of those things, because I I don't think we're there. Uh, would like to be a bit more assertive on a couple of those uh, those types of files to see if we can't make some gains there, because I think there's gains to be had. You know, you're meant for municipal government when you make the statement, "I'm excited to be on utility committee." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well. Uh, I am. I am. I, I know, know, and I love that you are. <laughs> yeah, like I, I was excited to be on audit committee. So yeah. <laughs> well, you know, when when you can say uh, you know uh, upgraded biogas feeding into the system to be used in a district heating plant, I mean, how can you not be excited about that? That you know, no that's, that's good. That's good stuff. So yeah. 
Well, this concludes the nerding out on the council part of the show. Uh, I wish you luck in your uh, term on utility committee and all the other things that are in front of you. Thanks again, Tim, for, for joining us uh, on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to, pleasure to chat with you both. Thanks. Councillor Cartmel isn't the only councillor you'll hear from this week. We're going to go 13 for 13. The final councillor we're going to introduce you to is the new councillor for EP Kokini Piozzi, Jennifer Rice. But before we get to that, an ad. Virtual open houses are coming up for Edmonton Public Schools, and they've helpfully sent along this clip for you to learn more. Get ready to take the guesswork out of choosing a school. Go to an Edmonton Public Schools virtual open house. Ask your questions to learn about their schools and programs, and find the one that feels right. All from the comfort of home. Find virtual event dates and learn how to make the most out of your online visit at openhouse.epsb.ca. Know before you go and feel confident and excited when you get there. The next counselor we are excited to talk to and hear from is Counselor Jennifer Rice, who represents Ward E.P. Kokinipiotsi. Uh, welcome to Speaking Municipally, Counselor. Uh, thank you very much, Mike. And then, thank you to have me here today. Yeah, excited to learn a little bit more about you. So uh, congratulations on your election to council. It was a close race back in October, but you're in the chair now. You've been through a budget cycle. You're basically a seasoned counselor now. Tell us all about who is Jennifer Rice? Why did you decide to run for council? What should uh, our listeners know about you? Uh, thank you for this opportunity. Yes, you're right. And after uh, six weeks um, in the chamber and specifically uh, going through all this important decision and big topics and for Edmontonians and right now and then so I have a little bit of experience but compared to our uh, returning counselor Andrew Lack yeah. and especially our counselor Lack and then uh, I think I'm still new I'm still learning but uh, I really appreciate any our city council and, and then our uh, many like uh, returning counselors and help us and and so that's a uh, very good thing for us uh, to have that uh, yes. in place. And for myself, so I decide, decided to run for the council actually is a little bit late. And then actually I want, to, uh, before I go to further, I want to say, uh, uh, express my thanks to Councillor Nack. And because before I decided I had uh, a conversation uh, with him and he took his time and from his very busy schedule and talked to me what uh, council uh, work looks like, uh, what they're doing every day to give, me, to give me that big picture and then actually helped me to make decision to run for, for the city council. And so running for city council for me, I think is, um, uh, is a very meaningful action. And because one reason for me to do this, I do want, I do want to uh, set the example, set the example for the community, and to inspire some community future leaders. Mm-hmm. And through my campaign, so at beginning, and then some media interviewed me. I told them very clear, and for me to know is not about. Uh, is not about Jennifer Rice, it's about our community, our city, and to uh, embrace, to em- embrace and all the different communities. And, and specifically for me, and because of my background, uh, heritage is from uh, Mandarin uh, Chinese community. 
So we have so many like young leaders, community leaders. I do want to use myself uh, experience going, going through this campaign and to inspire them and to get involved in our community development, in our city's development. I think this is so important and for every different background communities. I would say, and I, I, I'll say I used the new thing. I called myself a new counselor for like my entire, entire first term. So uh, feel free to keep using the new counselor piece as long as you like. Um, one question I, I have is just a little bit about what, what were you hearing? If, if anything, is there a common theme at the doors? Anything that, that you were hearing from residents that you want to make sure we're aware of that you hope to be working on? Is there many, many like common sense I heard at the door during my campaign. I, I think the first day uh, actually, uh, actually provided was one page of what I heard uh, at the door and during my campaign trail and to the council, to my colleague, and to like to say if there are any common ground and between us what we heard at the door. The few things, a few things I think I, what I heard most include, first of all, about the property tax, so that's his very common uh, topic. Mm-hmm. And then the common topic and have different angle to different voice. But the key point is about how we can uh, get the best value and from uh, the tax dollar we paid. So that means the balance between the services and the residents or people received and the tax dollar we paid. So that is one common thing I heard most. Uh, another one is about the community safety. So community safety, and I think is a key factor and for, the, for our city, for our community, and then people feel safe to live in the community. And then this actually impacts the quality of the life for our people. And of course, and the community safety is a big topic that under this big topic, we have so many different angles to look at. And but what I heard from people, we do want to keep our community safe and we do want to care about our vulnerable people and who live in our community to ensure everybody in our city feels safe. Well, it makes sense that during the budget discussion, you were very engaged on uh, both of those issues, value for the tax dollar and uh, and community safety, given that you heard about that all the time at the doorstep. So uh, great to see you uh, get so engaged right early on. Um, last question then is just as you look ahead to the rest of your term, is there something that stands out in your mind, like one thing that you would feel really proud of having accomplished by the time the next election rolls around? The one is about economic development for our city. Mm-hmm. Uh, our city's economy, and then I believe everybody knows, and COVID nineteen and impact our economy, and then also this is not only the city city wide challenge, actually is a global challenge as well. Uh, and but as a city, I do believe if we have strong economy, that means we will have sufficient even more resources, if I can use that word more, resources to support people, to care about people we actually need to support them and to care about them. And then like the family, like I 
I use a very simple uh, principle, like the family. If we don't have enough money, how we can even buy the food or buy the toys for our kids and then provide the good education for our kids as well. And I think this is something uh, in my perspective and to focus on that economic development will provide a very strong fundamental um, factor and for our city to have sufficient resources and to support uh, the people and the population, the vulnerable, and we want care for it. Makes sense. Okay. Well, I look forward to seeing uh, your efforts on diversifying the economy and good luck with the rest of uh, the year as you guys come back from holiday break and the rest of your council term. And thank you again for, for joining us. Okay, you're welcome. And thank you very much and to invite me. And I'm very happy to hear to talk to you. <laughs> and that's all for this week. Mac, uh, I'm looking at the recording time for this episode and yeesh, it's long. We are out of practice. I think it was a little bit bumpy. Uh, like the road uh, with all the ice running. Indeed. Thankfully, we got blading down to the pavement uh, and windrows covering the entire sidewalks. Great work, City of Edmonton. No need to scarf from scratch. Whose side am I on? <laughs> <laughs> this is what snow and ice does to you, Troy. I'm telling you. Until next week, I'm Troy. I'm Mac. And we're Speaking, Speaking Municipally. municipally.